This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, now officially Britain's fourth best radio show, after I've lost out in some awards to Clara Ramfo from Radio 1. But anyway, we won't dwell on that. Right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, the Parliamentary Book Awards. Yes, they couldn't have a big bash in real life, so they're having it with us instead. Find out who were the winners uh, of the best books by and about politicians. Uh, but first, we kick off with our columnist panel today, joined by Rosamond Irwin from the Sunday Times and James Marriott from the Times. So let's talk, first of all, about self-esteem and this uh, brilliant column you've written in The Times today, Jay. I well, I, think, I feel like I need to tell you it's brilliant just to help your self-esteem. Um, <laughs> uh, talk, it, so so it, you, you sort of explain basically what the, 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 the thesis that you put forward about self-esteem, the slight obsession with self-esteem and why actually having high self-esteem might not necessarily be a good thing. Yeah, so I find it really fascinating that self-esteem is this kind of underwriting idea in society that we all think it's a good thing to have self-esteem if we believe in ourselves if we're confident we'll succeed and i often find myself telling 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 myself this when i'm kind of going on in my head about what an idiot i am and how boring my columns are uh, which i often do and then i sort of wondered the other day why am i thinking this is it would i do better if i believed in myself and actually when you look into when you look into the whole concept of self-esteem it's basically made up it's an idea that came out of california in the 1970s uh, which is always a bad sign for ideas because um, many mad things came out of California in the 1970s uh, that was basically sort of half invented and promoted by a Californian state senator called John Vasconcellos. And basically, this was sort of his big idea. He was very much behind it. There's not much scientific backing for the idea that self-esteem improves your life. Most of the kind of recent um, social science research into it suggests that actually low self-esteem is a better predictor of success. People with low self-esteem are more aware of their faults. They can work to fix them. Um, a lot of the initial kind of confusion in the issue basically was that it's very hard to research self-esteem because all, all the experiments, you have to rely on people self-reporting. And obviously 
all the people with high self-esteem just told the researchers that they were doing brilliantly. They were very clever. <laughs> they had lots of friends, but that was just because they had they had high self-esteem. So you have to begin to look at it a bit more sort of critically and work out slightly cleverer ways to um, to study it. And that, of course, I mean, it's quite old now that it's been destroyed. I think it's been you know about twenty years since it's begun to be debunked. But it's still, I just find it amazing that it's such a kind of huge assumption in society that everyone has. Uh, Rosamond, uh, this feels like a very personal question, but what's your self-esteem like? Well, I, I've probably got a bit more than James reading his column, <laughs> but I would ag- absolutely agree with him on this. I mean, I've done lots of those sort of panels that you sit on telling women how to get on in the workplace, and they always, always come back to women need to be more confident. And I always say, actually, there's a whole bunch of men who need to be a lot less confident because what makes you better at your job, I completely agree with James on this, is a bit of insecurity. I mean, lots of journalists and writers obviously are painfully insecure. And I think that's quite healthy. That's how you improve. You read someone who's better than you and you think, God, I wish I could write a sentence like that. And then slowly it sort of seeps in and and you improve. And one thing I thought reading um, James's column is... The 1970s California element is really interesting because it's also a rejection of a Christian idea, which is very deep rooted in us. That idea of the blessed and the meek, i.e. the people who don't sort of champion themselves and shout loudly and all of that. So actually, it's something quite built into our society as sort of the opposite of this. And that we've sort of flipped it round is quite interesting. Um, so we, that so, is interesting. Yeah. That you're right. That the, 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 the uh, sort of uh, a bit of sort of... Um being humble and a bit of humility used to be seen as a, as a positive trait. Whereas now all the sort of self-confidence and, um, uh, you know, patting yourself on the back and high-fiving and all that sort of thing. It's, it's a different culture. You're, you're, you're right. I mean, I suppose it's where self-esteem tips over into sort of cockiness and arrogance and and therefore, you know, maybe laziness and, and that sort of thing, James. But you, you also point out that self-esteem has sort of had a, re, a slight rebrand because it's all become you know, self-care and self-cherishing and self-compassion and, and all the yeah, other things. Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating because I think most people think all that stuff sounds like a little nonsense. I do. I mean, if someone told me to kind of, you know, cherish myself or accept myself or, you know, do an act of self-care, I would be, I just think they were talking complete nonsense. But then it's kind of, then the underlying idea that uh, self-esteem is this scientifically acceptable, you know, proven thing that I think a lot of sceptical people would slightly unthinkingly accept seems very weird to me because I think the idea is basically the same. It's just been, you know, rebranded and updated a bit. But if you kind of go back to newspaper features and stuff that were being written in the 90s um, and maybe a little bit earlier than that, self-esteem was kind of a buzzword in the same way that like self-care is now. And it's just kind of weird that that sort of kooky, slightly zany buzzword that was invented by... um, this mad Californian senator and was about, you know, had the sort of scientific reputability of something like self-care or self-cherishing right now has kind of just become this kind of strange establishment accepted thing. I mean, I was looking through Hansard and people just talk about it in Parliament. If you've got a policy you want to promote and you want to make it seem, you want to add on an extra good thing that it will do, um, just pick self-esteem. So it'll improve people's (laughs) self-esteem and then you've got a nice little added bonus. It was interesting. The other thing that made me think about is sort of actually someone's reluctance or self-doubt about their own ability ends up being quite endearing. It's the re- part of the reason why everyone wanted Alan Johnson to become prime minister or Labour leader was because he kept saying he didn't want to do it or he didn't think he was <laughs> up to it. 
Um, and, you know, Estelle Morris, who who quit his education. This is going back a few years now, but she quit his education secretary saying that um, she didn't think she was very good at the job. And I was like, well, this is exactly who we want. We want someone who's, <laughs> you know, uh, got got a bit of self. And actually, the sort of slight, well, I'm definitely the right person for this. You know, I should. There's something a bit, it can come across a bit odd. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, I've noticed in interviews over the years that people are desperate to be self-deprecating, though. And I think they do think it's sometimes people put it on a bit and they think it's quite a charming thing. You know, oh, no, you know, my Oscar's on the wall, you know, you know, but I'm not the greatest actor type thing. I think people sometimes play to to that side as well, though, um, as a way to win people over. In fact, I just because I've got James's column up on my screen, and uh, somebody called John Cars just posted a comment underneath saying it's a good article, <laughs> useful corrective to the narcissist nonsense of our times. But he says, let's not fall as a result into the opposite extreme, the humble brag, which is a worse form of hypocrisy than the first. You're totally right. It's like, oh no, yeah, oh no, I'm rubbish, me. Oh no, I'm rubbish. That's you know, that's uh, that's also uh, really um, uh, really annoying as well. I won't share some of the yeah. other comments, James, because they'll, they'll they're going to be terrible <laughs> for your self esteem. Let's move on and talk about someone who who lacks no uh, self esteem, who, who doesn't lack self esteem at all. Is uh, Dominic Cummings? Um, uh, he uh, uh, popped up yesterday at the Science and Technology Select Committee. We knew it was important because he'd put a shirt on. Uh, uh, let's. T- I mean, he was calling for a whole load of things, but mainly just telling us that he was right about everything. Let's take a listen to it at the committee yesterday. There should be an urgent, um, very very hard look by this building into what went wrong and why in 2020. In spring 2020, you had a situation where Department for Health was just a smoking ruin in terms of procurement and PPE and all of that. We also had the EU proposal, which uh, looked like guaranteed programme to fail debacle. There were so many different ways that he used, you know, absolute disaster zone, blazing fire of ruin, absolute debacle. I mean, basically everyone else was rubbish, but luckily he was there to Mm -hmm. rescue things. Uh, Rosamund, what did you make of it? What did you make of it, uh, Dominic? Should we take any notice of him? A little bit of notice. I mean, <laughs> he's obviously been very unfair about civil servants. I mean, that's his his whole shtick going back over a decade now, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's always the fault of civil servants. And, and you know, here, I actually felt a little bit sorry for, for Matt Hancock because he then sort of had to say, well, actually, it was a great team effort, really. Um but uh, but I I think I think one of the mad things to me has always been that that you know it, he has Cummings has this idea of sort of burn everything to the ground and and then it will be reborn. Lots of us don't want that. You know we we think actually this, we have a, a world class civil service and and I think you know they fought the challenge that he has presented them with, i.e. Brexit. They have done very well in places and you know against what is an extraordinarily big challenge. Um, but uh, but because it's such a big challenge, it's it's very, very difficult to get to grips with it. And with the pandemic, you know, I, I, I do think, obviously, that we've got to look at all of the, the failings um, that went on and, and, and scrutinise them. But, of course, one of the failings quite early on was that somebody broke lockdown in quite spectacular a way and they had to <laughs> pretend he hadn't. And that obviously undermined... Uh, everybody else's feeling because it felt like oh there's one rule that for him and, and a different one for everyone who wasn't in in some form of power um so so I think that actually does need to be scrutinized too and obviously that wasn't what they were looking at yesterday yeah uh, James what do you make of it because I, I sort of yeah, it's not often used that phrase I felt a bit sorry for Matt Hancock but he did appear to no. go on there just to 
just to make just to have a massive dig at Matt Hancock saying, oh, the Department of course, the Department of Health was it was a total disaster. So uh, we were in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, you know, if it, if, it, if all was calm and quiet uh, over at the Department of Health, you, you'd have thought that there was perhaps something wrong. Um, are you are you interested in hearing more from Dominic Cummings, uh, James? Yeah, actually watching him, the kind of whole thing made me think, I find him kind of weirdly charismatic. And I kind of think maybe his uh, ideal career is less in politics running things and more uh, standing from the sidelines sniping, which kind of made me think maybe he'd be a good a good newspaper columnist or a good a good like TV <laughs> pundit. And the attitude of you're right, everyone else is wrong uh, could make an excellent could make an excellent columnist, to be honest. And we've already got Nick Timothy on that one. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> And, but I, yeah, and actually, I'm not sure. I mean, given the uh, the word count limitations of a, of a newspaper columnist, I mean, given that most of his blogs were sort of like twenty <laughs> twenty thousand words, I'm not sure whether he'd be able to um, uh, to uh, yeah to, to to limit his his many many thoughts. Um, <laughs> I, I, I suppose what we're also seeing, of course, is that all this talk of a of an inquiry, uh, Rosmond, and we've seen you know the Sunday Times has even got a book out on it already of how the last last twelve months unfolded. Is that everyone is slightly getting their story out now, and that Dominic Cummings is not just merely an observer of events; he was very much in the in the thick of him, and he's you know he used I yesterday to get his right. his version out. Yeah, and then there's a good line in Playbook this morning, some recollections may vary about Cummings' vaccine testimony. And I think that that's exactly right, isn't it? That everybody wants to get out their view now and as a way of sort of deflecting blame when the inevitable inquiry happens, which I think we will see. I mean, we we actually do need to look at how we've handled this, Um, partly because you know, there were people warning for years and years that we were overdue a pandemic of whom I'm actually one. So, um, you know, we knew this would come eventually. Um, It's sort of, there is an inevitability to these things. You know, we hadn't escaped that. And so, you know, were we adequately prepared? No. And was the early handling of it, and obviously this is one of the things that's scrutinised in the book um, done by Sunday Times Insight team, um, were were we prepared in the early days? Absolutely not. Did we handle it well in the early days? Absolutely not. Uh, James, before uh, I wind up, because we've been talking about book suggestions for uh, um, for politicians to read, so we've got the Parliamentary Book Awards coming up at 11 o'clock. We can't have the deputy books out of the Times on and not get some... Uh, some uh, book suggestions. Which, which any any genuine books or silly pun type book titles uh, of uh, suggestions for politicians? Um, well, can I just recommend a book that I'm reading about octopuses? <laughs> um, you can. What's it called? Go on. And I think everyone should read, regardless of their role in politics or not. It's called Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Smith, and it's all about how octopuses evolved brains and potentially consciousness independently of all other animals and about how they have their brains in their arms and they can move their arms without the rest of their bodies and knowing what's going on. Um, and it's all about what octopus consciousness can tell us about human consciousness. Uh, and I was up to like two in the morning reading it. It's completely fascinating. Uh, I'm kind of unable to think about any other books apart from that one at the moment. Uh, so I just get that, highly recommend uh, that. Of all the things I thought you were going to say, it wasn't that. <laughs> so, uh, so that sets you surprised. Rosma, can you, can you top that in any way? <laughs> I don't think 
that is topable, is it? Um, I've been reading the Ishiguro novel. That's not really very relevant. Um, but like pretty much everyone else, it seems reading that. Um, I to do to do one of that uh, has a Times um, writer. I do think um, one of the things that feels and is also an excellent political pun. Uh, the Week are a Long Time in Politics by Patrick Kidd. Um, I, I do think that is one of the best titles <laughs> of any, um, any political book ever because it's exactly perfect. That was Rosamund Irwin and James Marriott. There, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Up next, get your glad rags on. Walk up the red carpet. It's time for the Parliamentary Book Awards. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2021 Parliamentary Book Awards. Yes, they can't have a proper bash, so we're going to do it live on the radio instead. Now, political books were course and mainstay of Westminster. Looking at my bookshelf above me, they're full of biographies and autobiographies and quite a lot of unread books uh, too, all diving into politics uh, and uh, some written by MPs and journalists and uh, some about MPs and journalists too. And so uh, what better way to celebrate uh, all of those books which have been uh, written and published in the last 12 months than hosting the Parliamentary Book Awards 2021 here on Times Radio. In just a moment, we'll reveal the winners and speak to them. But first, let's bring in the chief executive of the organiser of the awards, uh, the Publishers Association. It's Steve Latinga. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having us on. No, not at all. Not at all. So explain. I mean, normally you would have a do, wouldn't you? And there would be wine and, and amusing speeches and so on. But inevitably, that's not been able to happen. Unfortunately not. No, this is the uh, fifth year of the awards. And uh, normally it is uh, held with a big bash in, uh, in Westminster to celebrate all of the uh, political uh, the, the, the winners. But uh, as you can see, we're all stuck in our homes at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we are all on a Zoom call to uh, do the winner. I mean, I am the only one. I've genuinely put my dinner suit and dicky bow on during the news. And no, no, you haven't done that, but I won't, I won't hold that against you. What, are, what sort of entries did you have this year? What were, the, were there any particular themes that stood out from the, the political uh, books this year? We've had a huge range of books. I mean, the most um, nominations I think we've ever had. And they range from books about polarisation through to feminism to um, some of the more kind of 
um, usual books around politicians' own personal experiences. So I wouldn't say there's a there's a theme. I mean, we've had I think at least 60, 70 odd nominations, so it'd be quite difficult to extract that. And it's a bit early to get the books around what we're going through at the moment in terms of specifically around um, lockdown. So probably next year we'll see a lot more of that. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on then to uh, the first awards. Uh, could you give us who were the shortlist for best biography, memoir, or autobiography by a parliamentarian? Of course. So the shortlist is first, first Ernest Bevan, Labour's Churchill by Andrew Donis, published by Biteback Publishing. Secondly, Long Way Home, Love, Life, Death, and Everything in Between by Dan Jarvis, published by Little Brown. And then Eyes and Ears, A Survivor's Guide to Westminster by David Amos, which was by Lewis Press. So, Stephen Latinga from the Publishers Association, I stand by for the drum roll. And can you please tell us who, what is the winner of Best Biography, Memoir, Autobiography by a Parliamentarian? And the winner is Long Way Home, Love, Life, Death and Everything in Between by Dan Jarvis. Congratulations to Dan Jarvis. And as if by magic, Dan Jarvis, the Labour MP for Barnes Essential, uh, joins us now. Hi, Dan. Hi, Matt. So uh, how does it feel to have won, first of all? Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I'm a bit surprised because, as Stephen has just outlined, it was a very strong field. And uh, I'm particularly pleased because, as you know, Matt, and as Nikki will know as well, internal elections in Parliament are taken quite seriously. And the way in which the winner is arrived at is that MPs and peers get to vote. So everybody in Parliament has had the opportunity to have their say. So I'm particularly pleased that in a strong field I was able to, to win. So surprised, but really, really delighted. And just tell us a bit about uh, the book. It's about your time before becoming a politician. Yes. So I think almost the first words of the book are this is not a book about politics and it isn't a book about politics. And it's a book about love, life, death and all the stuff in between. And it was something of a labour of love for me. It took me five years to piece it all together. Um, But it's been a really positive experience. And I've been so heartened to receive feedback from people right around the world who've read it, enjoyed it and found it worthwhile. So although it was difficult to do it, as Nikki will know, when you're in Parliament, trying to find the time to do these things is incredibly challenging. But I'm really pleased that I did. And so, yeah, it covers your time. You're in the, the parachute regiment. And so it's got a lot of your military career, which often gets sort of mentioned in passing when people write or talk about you. But it's sort of it's your your version of events. But then also covering um, you sadly lost your wife, Caroline. Yeah, it's, it's a deeply personal book, Matt. And it's taken me a long time to be in a position to be able to talk about my experiences of losing my wife to cancer. You know, this was the most traumatic of experiences. And I have to say, writing the book has been a very cathartic process for me because the nature of my life has been incredibly busy and my wife tragically died. And then very quickly thereafter, I found myself in Parliament on and on this kind of sort of roller coaster ride. And as you know, politics has been a pretty busy place to be for the last 10 years or so. A lot of things have happened. So amidst all of that, being able to find a bit of calm and time and space to process what had happened before has actually been a really cathartic and therapeutic process. So I personally feel much better for having got it off my chest and for having committed it to the page. But the the really satisfying thing about it all is that people have read it and they've come back and said, thank you for doing it, because it's explained lots of things 
in my own life, in my own background that I couldn't previously explain. And your book has, has helped to do that. And that's been immensely rewarding. When you sort of was sitting down to write, who did you have in mind as the reader? I had my constituents in mind as the reader. I mean, as, as you mentioned, Matt, I think people know about the fact that I've been in the army and that could be quite frustrating when you're in Parliament and you're trying to talk about other things. And I never wanted to be the person who was characterised by what I'd done before. I'm really proud of being in the army, but that was some time ago and I'm now a mayor and an MP. And actually, I don't always want to talk about defence and security, although those are very important matters. So given that so many people had asked me about it and I'd sort of shied away from talking about it, I thought, well, this was the right moment to draw it all together and talk about my experiences, both in terms of Kosovo and Afghanistan and Iraq and everything that we went through, but then contrasting that with the challenge of, of bereavement. So it's a really tough, difficult read, but it's done in a very positive way. And I hope that I'm able to demonstrate that however tough the challenge, however difficult circumstances you find yourselves in, you can come through it and come out of it positively the other side. And uh, I'm intrigued by the idea that that because it's it's other parliamentarians who get to vote on this, I mean, are you allowed to campaign and lobby? Do you you, uh, post 650 copies of the book to uh, your parliamentary colleagues? How do you, or I suppose it's difficult the last 12 months, it's difficult to bend people's ear in corridors. It, it is, and I, I perhaps unwisely, and this is not a great electoral strategy, didn't get into a sort of particularly sort of serious campaign. I think it was <laughs> quite a keenly contested event, though. I think there was a bit of campaigning going on behind the scenes. Um, but I think on matters such as this, the House tends to be quite sort of, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I, quite sort of sensible about the choice that they arrive at. So I hope the party politics didn't play too much of a uh, of an issue in terms of the decisions that people chose about who they were going to vote for. Uh, Dan, it's really good to speak to you. Uh, uh, and uh, congratulations again on uh, on winning the book uh, for of uh, best biography, winning the award for best biography, memoir or autobiography by a parliamentarian. Uh, Dan Jarvis, uh, Labour MP and of course Mayor for the Sheffield City. Sheffield City region too. Dan Jarvis, thanks very much for joining us. So, uh, Stephen Latinga from the Publishers Association, we move on to our next awards. Uh, could you tell us the shortlist, please, for best political book, including biography, uh, by a non-parliamentarian? Thank you, Matt. So, the shortlist is Fake Law, The Truth About Justice in an Age of Lies by the Secret Barrister, and published by Pam Macmillan. Uh, the Prime Minister, 55 Leaders, 55 Authors, 300 Years of History by Ian Dale, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And then, last but not least, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights by Helen Lewis, and published by Jonathan Cape. OK, so Stephen Atinga, could I ask you to un- open your entirely virtual golden envelope and tell us who is the winner of the best political book by a non-parliamentarian? And this year's winner is... The Prime Minister's 55 Leaders, 55 Authors, 300 Years of History by Ian Bell. Well, uh, we obviously couldn't have 50, because it's a collection of essays, essentially, about each part. We couldn't have all 55 authors on, but we can speak to uh, Nikki Morgan, Baroness Morgan, of course, who uh, wrote the chapter on Lords North in the book. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Matt. So Lords North, interestingly, because we've been because it because it's the anniversary of this year's 300 years of Britain having prime ministers, obviously why this uh, book has come out. So we've been looking at a prime minister every week throughout the show, although there aren't 55 weeks in the year. We are aware of that. We are going to have some 
a backlog. But we actually did Lord North this week and tried to slightly redress the subject because he is the, the prime minister who's always cited as, you know, so-and-so is the worst prime minister since Lord North. And we slightly tried to address that. So uh, why Lord North in your case? Well, thank you very much. And firstly, I should just say thank you very much to everybody who voted. I'm here on behalf of Ian Dale. He's very sorry that he's not able to collect the award himself, but I know he's absolutely thrilled uh, by it. Um, and yes, you're good that all 55 of us aren't crowded around one microphone. Um, well, I chose Lord North partly because um, of the parallels with, um, you know, at the time of writing, losing the American colonies, obviously, the, if you could might say losing or, or changing the relationship that we have with the, uh, the EU. Um, but, um, but I think actually in, in writing, I suspect that probably all 55 of us found this, which was that in writing about our prime minister, actually, you do discover other things. Um, you potentially build up some sympathy with them or some frustration. Um, and um, I mean, who knew, for example, I didn't, that um, a skirmish over the Falkland Islands was not a new 20th century phenomenon that Lord North had also had to um, uh, oversee um, some, some difficulties relating to the Falkland Islands. And of course, he kept a relationship with George III um, on track, who's been popularised by the madness of, of King George. Um, that was a tricky relationship. Um, and I, I just thought there were some good parallels of 21st century. And I was delighted. This, um, I think I finished the chapter just as the lockdown started last year. Um, but just before that, I managed to fit in a visit to Roxton College in Banbury, which was the Lord North home. And there's the, the picture there and everything else. So I just think there's an opportunity for all of us, probably, just to get to know our our, our prime minister, whichever we were writing about better. But Ian had the hard task, obviously, of making sure that we were all consistent in what we wrote, that we got our chapters in on time. Um, and that is no mean feat, I can tell you. So how did how did this process work then? Did Ian come to you and say, do you want to pick a prime minister? Or were you assigned Lord? Was there someone, you know, left with a duff one? Or did you get to choose? Well, you'd have to ask the other 54 whether they think that theirs was the <laughs> one that they didn't want to do. Um, I did get to choose. Um, Ian asked me quite early on in the, the process. Um, I think it was in the uh, the summer of uh, 2019 when um, uh, he sort of first came up with, with all of this. And he's obviously, um, he's now going to be right, doing a book about, um, I think, um, American presidents. And I think kings and queens will follow after that. Um, but uh, he asked us, but there were definitely some left over towards the end of the process. And we were asked whether we either wanted to uh, write about somebody else or whether we could uh, find uh, someone else to, to do a chapter um, uh, and, and nominate, nominate another writer. So uh, go on, tell us, who, who were some of the leftover prime ministers that, that well, haven't I, been I can't all, But I do know that Lord Melbourne was leftover because I persuaded Robert Buckland um, in between being <laughs> Lord, uh, sort of Lord Chancellor, whether he could write about Melbourne, which he did with aplomb. So, um, and what's lovely is that some of the people have got connections. So obviously the chapter on Spencer Percival was written by Henry Bellingham. And of course it was Henry's um, distant predecessor who of course assassinated uh, Spencer Percival. So that yeah, was- so Hen uh, Henry Bellingham, former uh, foreign office minister, in fact. Yes. Uh, MP. Um, yeah, and his his uh, ancestor was responsible for bumping off the only only British prime minister ever ever to be assassinated. What did you learn from uh, the process, both your chapter and the book in general? Uh, and what does it tell us about who makes a good prime minister and who makes a bad one? 
So um, I, what we learned, I think, was that, um, and I think Ian was very good in this, he had a, a very clear framework, what he wanted. And what he wanted was to appeal to a, a non-political expert audience, non-academic. He wanted us to bring the prime ministers uh, to life. He wanted us to voice an opinion uh, about them, which I think perhaps was slightly easier for the more recent ones where we can remember them. The person writing actually knows um, about them. So I mean, Rachel Sylvester wrote about Theresa May, for example, and Ian himself wrote about uh, Boris Johnson. So that's, um, but he, he wanted us to bring them uh, to life. And as I say, he was quite clear on how he wanted us to write things so that made it easier from the consistency perspective. Well, what he also says in, in his introduction, Ian, is that um, actually a lot about Brian being prime minister is about timing and it's about luck. Um, you know, as we know, it's about what happens on your on your watch and whether your face fits. We all know that there are people who would probably have made excellent prime ministers, but just the face didn't fit at that moment that there was a, an election or in the days before leadership elections when the men in grey suits were consulting as to as to who should uh, should take over. Um, and, um, and of course, earlier on, I think the other thing you want to do was to go back to the beginning, as you say, April next month is the tricentenary of the appointment of the man widely regarded as our first prime minister, Sir Robert Walpole, and bring some of those early prime ministers to life. Um, because um, it is a fascinating thing to, to follow through. And Boris Johnson says in his introduction, he's very conscious. He, he's living in a, a building which has seen a lot of prime ministers. He stands at a dispatch box where his forebears have been. And there is always, I think, in these things, a real sense of, of taking up the baton. But you're also very conscious that, you know, prime ministerial shelf life isn't always that long. And as you say, can sometimes be ended by others. So you've got to make the most of the opportunity while you have it. It's, a, it's, it's such a good idea. Just finally, if someone's looking to show off, because we always talk about this when we, when we do the item on a Monday, if someone is looking to show what's your best Lord North fact that we can pass off and make ourselves seem incredibly clever? Well, I love the fact that actually um, when he was finally turfed out of office, he basically orchestrated himself because he was a parliamentary man. He knew how parliament worked. Um, and so um, they were, the parliament finished early that day. Um, and because he knew what he was going to do, he had his carriage ready and waiting. So he was able to jump into his carriage and escape parliament and go off to apparently a lovely dinner party while everybody else was still scrambling to get their carriage to take them off to their club or their game, poker game or whatever it was they were going to go and play. That's top it. I and mean, that's top advice for life. Never mind planning your why, you know, plan your exit. Plan, plan your, your exit. exit. Exactly. Exactly right. Nikki Morgan, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, Nikki Morgan, just one of the uh, yeah, 55, contri 55 yeah. contributors to uh, Ian Dell's book, uh, which he's collected, the Prime Minister's 55 Leaders, 55 Authors, 300 Years of History. Uh, the winner of uh, the uh, best uh, book, by a not best political book by a non parliamentarian, although a few parliamentarians have snuck in there uh, by writing a, a chapter. Uh, right, uh, we move on next, Stephen Latinga from the Publishers Association. We move on next to the shortlist, please, for best non fiction book by a parliamentarian. So the shortlist is The Art of Disruption, a Manifesto for Real Change by Majid Majid. Tribes, a Search for Belonging in a Divided Society by David Lamming and published by Constable. And The Glamour Boys, The Secret Story of the Rebels Who Fought for Britain to Defeat Hitler by Chris Bryant and published by Bloomsbury. OK, so it's our last award. So a final drum roll, please. Who is the winner of the best non-fiction book by a parliamentarian? And the winner is The Glamour Boys, The Secret Story of the Rebels Who Fought for Britain to Defeat Hitler by Chris Bryant. And I caught up with Chris to break the news to him. Chris, of course, is the Labour MP for the Ronda. And I start off by asking him, Chris, how does it feel to have won? I'm very pleased, not least because this is a book about parliamentarians and this is an award that is voted for by parliamentarians. So 
I kind of like that. Yeah, it's voted for by the people who you most, <laughs> I was going to say most respect. I'm not sure that's necessarily the right word. But it's nice It's nice that other MPs... Other most MPs, of whom loathe me, so it's <laughs> nice that they like my book. It must mean the book is particularly good. For people who don't know, uh, give us... Um, obviously, don't give away all of it because we want people to read the book, but give us the story of the Glamour Boys. So it's the true story of a group of gay or bisexual MPs, um, mostly Tories, who at the beginning of the 1930s liked to go to Germany a lot to have sex because you could have sex in Germany with impunity, unlike in the UK, where you'd get sent to prison for up to two years with hard labour and uh, whipping. And uh, they supported Germany being loosened from the ties of the Versailles Treaty. And, and they got to know some of the early gay Nazis. But unfortunately, Hitler bumped off all the gay Nazis in uh, 1934 in the Night of the Long Knives. And this group of men back in the, back in the UK became the most vociferous opponents of Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement. They believed that you had to fight the dictators in Europe, not appease them. Um, they were hated by Neville Chamberlain, who called them through a secret black ops unit that he set up in Downing Street, um, the Glamour Boys, as a way of insinuating something about their sexuality. Uh, and these men hanged together very much as a group. They went on, they kept on making speeches, they were threatened with deselection they had their phones tapped they were followed nasty articles about why you're still a bachelor um, and when war came lots of them enlisted and four of them were killed in action and i remember bumping into you uh, one day in the uh, corridor in parliament when such a thing was allowed and you were telling me <laughs> about how because you'd previously written two biographies of parliament as a building and you'd uncovered some of their stories in the process of, of researching that. In particular, the, the, was it that some of them hadn't had shields put up in their name. It's true that Churchill was so fond of all of these and worked closely with them that when one of them was killed in action, Churchill said that when the chamber of the House of Commons, which had been bombed 14 times, was rebuilt after the war, they would put up uh, little shields to each of the MPs who'd been killed in action, which is why there's one for... Uh, Jack McNamara, the MP for Chelmsford, um, Victor Caslett for Chippenham, Rob Bernays and Ronnie Cartland, uh, who are the four from my book. And, and, and that was because he was so close to them and he felt that we had to be bear that memorial. And I always used to look up at these little shields and think, well, I wonder who that is. And I remember just looking up about one of them, Jack McNamara. And I came across this paragraph about Jack McNamara in another history book, which said that he was... Uh, a really right-wing conservative MP, so right-wing he was virtually a fascist. He supported Hitler. Um, he went on sex tours with his lover, who was a married Anglican archdeacon called Herbert Sharp. And on one occasion, they were they played table tennis in a male brothel in Paris with the leader of the French fascist party uh, when the role of the net was taken by a naked Belgian professional cyclist with apparently very impressive thighs. And I thought, well, well, that's intrinsically a kind of interesting paragraph. Lots of that proved not to be true. I mean, in fact, Jack McNamara was never a pro-Nazi. All the sex stuff is probably true, however. And how do you go about, because obviously being a gay politician in Britain at that time was not easy. Uh, and so how do you go about piecing together their lives? Because you haven't got necessarily sort of publicly available biographies and that sort of thing, even families after they'd, they died. Probably if they did know, they probably moved to cover that, that sort of thing up. So how do, you go, how do you go about piecing together the lives of, of people who in, in several cases have been dead for many, many years? So you have to follow every kind of lead you get. I found Robert Bernays's two sons and they were really helpful. They gave me a whole load of material. And Ronnie Cartland's elder sister, Barbara Cartland, the novelist, I hesitate before the word novelist, 
and she almost certainly destroyed a lot of Ronnie's papers. But you can still read between the lines in a lot of the stuff that she wrote. And sometimes you just have to pull on a, a sort of thread in the narrative and you end up finding out a whole lot more. Really depressingly, since I wrote the book, some other families have been in touch about other people that I could have been more forthright about. Now you've won this award, what's your next book you're working on? Is there another thread that you're currently pulling on? Yes, I am. I, I'm writing a book which will be called James and John. It's about James Pratt and John Smith, who were the last two men hanged for buggery in 1835. And um, that sounds like a terribly depressing story. But what I'm trying to do is kind of give them back their lives. It, it's just fascinating turning over tiny bits and pieces of information that you can find out about them through the various different uh, archives that there are. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. So that was uh, Chris Byne collecting his award in the Parliamentary uh, Book Award, still joined by Stephen Latinga from the Publishers Association who organised it. Stephen, if people want to find out about the other books that were shortlisted and, you know, the, the rubber stamp of approval, uh, how can they go about doing that? Well, they can go to our website where they will be listed um, and um, recognised for the great, the great writing that they were. I mean, we had a huge range of books this year, as I said previously, and um, we can only select a few of those, but there are some really, really interesting books amongst them. And as I said, some very talented writers within the parliamentary ranks for people to go and explore. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.